Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are continuing with post-scarcity anarchism, the second section of the book called Listen Marxists, that aims, and so far has not done a great job, of compelling Marxists to rethink some assumptions and side more on the anarchist notions of how we should organize. I have not found it very convincing thus far, but let's see how this next section goes. The Two Traditions It would be incredibly naive to suppose that Leninism was the product of a single man. The disease lies much deeper, not only in the limitations of Marxian theory, but in the limitations of the social era that produced Marxism. If this is not clearly understood, we will remain as blind to the dialectic of events today as Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Trotsky were in their own day. For us, this blindness will be all the more reprehensible because behind us lies a wealth of experience that these men lacked in developing their theories. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were centralists, not only politically, but socially and economically. They never denied this fact, and their writings are studded with glowing encomiums to political, organizational, and economic centralization. As early as March 1850, in the famous Address of the Central Council to the Communist League, they call upon the workers to strive not only for, quote, the single and indivisible German Republic, but also strive in it for the most decisive centralization of power in the hands of the state authority. End quote. Lest the demand be taken lightly, it is repeated continually in the same paragraph, which concludes quote, As in France in 1793, so today in Germany, the carrying through of the strictest centralization is the task of the really revolutionary party. End quote. The same theme reappears continually in later years. With the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War, for example, Marx writes to Engels, quote, The French need a thrashing. If the Prussians win, the centralization of state power will be useful for the centralization of the German working class. End quote. Citation 35. Marx and Engels, however, were not centralists because they believed in the virtues of centralism per se. Quite the contrary. Both Marxism and anarchism have always agreed that a liberated communist society entails sweeping decentralization, the dissolution of bureaucracy, the abolition of the state, and the breakup of the large cities. Quote, abolition of the antithesis between town and country is not merely possible, notes Engels in Anti-During. It has become a direct necessity. The present poisoning of the air, water, and land can be put to an end only by the fusion of town and country. End quote. To this, Engels invokes a quote, uniform distribution of the population over the whole country. End quote. Citation 36. In short, the physical decentralization of the cities. The origins of Marxian centralism are in problems arising from the formation of the national state. Until well into the latter half of the 19th century, Germany and Italy were divided into a multitude of independent duchies, principalities, and kingdoms. 
The consolidation of these geographic units into unified nations, Marx and Engels believed, was a sine qua non for the development of modern industry and capitalism. Their praise of centralization was engendered not by any centralistic mystique, but by the events of the period in which they lived. The development of technology, trade, a unified working class, and the national state. Their concern on this score, in short, is with the emergence of capitalism, with the tasks of the bourgeois revolution in an era of unavoidable material scarcity. Marx's approach to a proletarian revolution, on the other hand, is markedly different. He enthusiastically praises the Paris Commune as a, quote, model to all the industrial centres of France. This regime, he writes, once established in Paris and the secondary centres, the old centralised government would, in the provinces too, have to give way to the self-government of the producers, end quote. Emphasis added on those last four words. The unity of the nation, to be sure, would not disappear, and a central government would exist during the transition to communism, but its functions would be limited. Our object is not to bandy about quotations from Marx and Engels, but to emphasize how key tenets of Marxism, which are accepted so uncritically today, were in fact the product of an era that has long been transcended by the development of capitalism in the United States and Western Europe. In his day, Marx was occupied not only with the problems of the proletarian revolution, but also with the problems of the bourgeois revolution, particularly in Germany, Spain, Italy, and Eastern Europe. He dealt with the problems of transition from capitalism to socialism in capitalist countries, which had not advanced much beyond the coal-steel technology of the Industrial Revolution, and with the problems of transition from feudalism to capitalism in countries which had scarcely advanced much beyond handicrafts and the guild system. To state these concerns broadly, Marx was occupied above all with the preconditions of freedom technological development, national unification, material abundance, rather than with the conditions of freedom. Decentralization, the formation of communities, the human scale, direct democracy. His theories were still anchored in the realm of survival, not the realm of life. Once this is grasped, it is possible to place Marx's theoretical legacy in meaningful perspective, to separate its rich contributions from its historically limited, indeed paralyzing, shackles on our own time. The Marxian dialectic, the many seminal insights provided by historical materialism, the superb critique of the commodity relationship, many elements of the economic theories, the theory of alienation, and above all the notion that freedom has material preconditions, these are lasting contributions to revolutionary thought. By the same token, Marx's emphasis on the industrial proletariat as the agent of revolutionary change, his class analysis in explaining the transition from a class to a classless society, his concept of the proletarian dictatorship, his emphasis on centralism, his theory of capitalist development which tends to jumble state capitalism with socialism, his advocacy of political action through electoral parties. 
These and many related concepts are false in the context of our time and were misleading, as we shall see, even in his own day. They emerge from the limitations of his vision, more properly, from the limitations of his time. They make sense only if one remembers that Marx regarded capitalism as historically progressive, as an indispensable stage to the development of socialism, and they have practical applicability only to a time when Germany in particular was confronted by bourgeois democratic tasks and national unification. We are not trying to say that Marx was correct in holding this approach, merely that the approach makes sense when viewed in its time and place. Just as the Russian Revolution included a subterranean movement of the masses, which conflicted with Bolshevism, so there is a subterranean movement in history which conflicts with all systems of authority. The movement has entered into our time under the name of anarchism, although it has never been encompassed by a single ideology or body of sacred texts. Anarchism is a libidinal movement of humanity against coercion in any form, reaching back in time to the very emergence of propertied society, class rule, and the state. From this period onward, the oppressed have resisted all forms that seek to imprison the spontaneous development of social order. Anarchism has surged to the foreground of the social arena in periods of major transition from one historical era to another. The decline of the ancient and feudal world witnessed the upsurge of mass movements, in some cases wildly Dionysian in character, that demanded an end to all systems of authority, privilege, and coercion. The anarchic movements of the past failed largely because material scarcity, a function of the low level of technology, vitiated an organic harmonization of human interests. Any society that could promise little more materially than equality of poverty invariably engendered deep-seated tendencies to restore a new system of privilege. In the absence of a technology that could appreciably reduce the working day, the need to work vitiated social institutions based on self-management. The Girondins of the French Revolution shrewdly recognized that they could use the working day against revolutionary Paris. To exclude radical elements from the sections, they tried to enact legislation which would end all assembly meetings before 10pm, the hour when Parisian workers returned from their jobs. Indeed, it was not only the manipulative techniques and the treachery of the vanguard organizations that brought the anarchic phases of past revolutions to an end, it was also the material limits of past eras. The masses were always compelled to return to a lifetime of toil, and rarely were they free to establish organs of self-management that could last beyond the revolution. Anarchists such as Bakunin and Kropotkin, however, were by no means wrong in criticizing Marx for his emphasis on centralism and his elitist notions of organization. Was centralism absolutely necessary for technological advances in the past? Was the nation-state indispensable to the expansion of commerce? Did the workers' movement benefit by the emergence of highly centralized economic enterprises and the indivisible state? We tend to accept these tenets of Marxism too uncritically, largely because capitalism developed within a centralized political arena. 
The anarchists of the last century warned that Marx's centralistic approach, insofar as it affected the events of the time, would so strengthen the bourgeoisie and the state apparatus that the overthrow of capitalism would be extremely difficult. The revolutionary party, by duplicating these centralistic hierarchical features, would reproduce hierarchy and centralism in the post-revolution society. Bakunin, Kropotkin, and Malatesta were not so naive as to believe that anarchism could be established overnight. In imputing this notion to Bakunin, Marx and Engels willfully distorted the Russian anarchists' views. Nor did the anarchists of the last century believe that the abolition of the state involved laying down arms immediately after the revolution, to use Marx's obscurantist choice of terms, thoughtlessly repeated by Lenin in State and Revolution. Indeed, much that passes for Marxism in State and Revolution is pure anarchism. For example, the substitution of revolutionary militias for professional armed bodies and the substitution of organs of self-management for parliamentary bodies. What is authentically Marxist in Lenin's pamphlet is the demand for strict centralism, the acceptance of a new bureaucracy and the identification of Soviets with a state. The anarchists of the last century were deeply preoccupied with the question of achieving industrialization without crushing the revolutionary spirit of the masses and rearing new obstacles to emancipation. They feared that centralization would reinforce the ability of the bourgeoisie to resist the revolution and instill in the workers a sense of obedience. They tried to rescue all those pre-capitalist communal forms, such as the Russian Mir and the Spanish Pueblo, which might provide a springboard to a free society, not only in a structural sense, but also a spiritual one. Hence, they emphasized the need for decentralization even under capitalism. In contrast to the Marxian parties, their organizations gave considerable attention to what they called integral education, the development of the whole man, to counteract the debasing and banalizing influence of bourgeois society. The anarchists tried to live by the values of the future to the extent that this was possible under capitalism. They believed in direct action to foster the initiative of the masses to preserve the spirit of revolt, to encourage spontaneity. They tried to develop organizations based on mutual aid and brotherhood, in which control would be exercised from below upward, not downward from above. We must pause here to examine the nature of anarchist organizational forms in some detail, if only because the subject has been obscured by an appalling amount of rubbish. Anarchists, or at least anarcho-communists, accept the need for organization. Footnote 56. It should be as absurd to have to repeat this point as to argue over whether Marx accepted the need for social revolution. The real question at issue here is not organization versus non-organization, but rather what kind of organization the anarcho-communists try to establish. What the different kinds of anarcho-communist organizations have in common is organic developments from below, not bodies engineered into existence from above. They are social movements, 
combining a creative revolutionary lifestyle with a creative revolutionary theory. Not political parties whose mode of life is indistinguishable from the surrounding bourgeois environment and whose ideology is reduced to rigid, tried and tested programs. As much as is humanly possible, they try to reflect the liberated society they seek to achieve, not slavishly duplicate the prevailing system of hierarchy, class and authority. They are built around intimate groups of brothers and sisters, affinity groups, whose ability to act in common is based on initiative, on convictions freely arrived at, and on a deep personal involvement, not around a bureaucratic apparatus fleshed out by a docile membership and manipulated from above by a handful of all-knowing leaders. The anarcho-communists do not deny the need for coordination between groups, for discipline, for meticulous planning, and for unity in action. But they believe that coordination, discipline, planning, and unity in action must be achieved voluntarily, by means of a self-discipline nourished by conviction and understanding, not by coercion and a mindless, unquestioning obedience to orders from above. They seek to achieve the effectiveness imputed to centralism by means of voluntarism and insight, not by establishing a hierarchical, centralized structure. Depending upon needs or circumstances, affinity groups can achieve this effectiveness through assemblies, action committees, and local, regional, or national conferences but they vigorously oppose the establishment of an organizational structure that becomes an end in itself, of communities that linger on after their practical tasks have been completed, of a leadership that reduces the revolutionary to a mindless robot. These conclusions are not the result of flighty individualist impulses, quite to the contrary. They emerge from an exacting study of past revolutions, of the impact centralized parties have had on the revolutionary process, and of the nature of social change in an era of potential material abundance. Anarcho-communists seek to preserve and extend the anarchic phase that opens all the great social revolutions. Even more than Marxists, they recognize that revolutions are produced by deep historical processes. No central committee makes a social revolution, at best it can stage a coup d'etat, replacing one hierarchy by another. Or worse, arrest a revolutionary process if it exercises any widespread influence. A central committee is an organ for acquiring power, for recreating power, for gathering to itself what the masses have achieved by their own revolutionary efforts. One must be blind to all that has happened over the past two centuries not to recognize these essential facts. In the past, Marxists could make an intelligible, although invalid, claim for the need for a centralized party because the anarchic phase of the revolution was nullified by material scarcity. Economically, the masses were always compelled to return to a daily life of toil. The revolution closed at 10 o'clock. Quite aside from the reactionary intentions of the Girondins of 1793, it was arrested by the low level of technology. 
Today, even this excuse has been removed by the development of a post-scarcity technology, notably in the US and Western Europe. A point has now been reached where the masses can begin, almost overnight, to expand drastically the realm of freedom in the Marxian sense, to acquire the leisure time needed to achieve the highest degree of self-management. What the May-June events in France demonstrated was not the need for a Bolshevik-type party, but the need for greater consciousness among the masses. Paris demonstrated that an organization is needed to propagate ideas systematically, and not ideas alone, but ideas which promote the concept of self-management. What the French masses lacked was not a central committee or a Lenin to organize or command them, but the conviction that they could have operated the factories instead of merely occupying them. It is noteworthy that not a single Bolshevik-type party in France raised the demand of self-management. The demand was raised only by the anarchists and the situationists. There is a need for a revolutionary organization, but its function must always be kept clearly in mind. Its first task is propaganda, to patiently explain, as Lenin put it. In a revolutionary situation, the revolutionary organization prevents the most advanced demands. It is prepared at every turn of events to formulate, in the most concrete fashion, the immediate task that should be performed to advance the revolutionary process. It provides the boldest elements in action and in the decision-making organs of the revolution. In what way, then, do anarcho-communist groups differ from the Bolshevik type of party? Certainly not on such issues as the need for organization, planning, coordination, propaganda in all its forms, or the need for a social program. Fundamentally, they differ from the Bolshevik type of party in their belief that genuine revolutionaries must function within the framework of the forms created by the revolution, not within the forms created by the party. What this means is that their commitment is to the revolutionary organs of self-management, not to the revolutionary organization, to the social forms, not the political forms. Anarcho-communists seek to persuade the factory committees, assemblies, or Soviets to make themselves into genuine organs of popular self-management, not to dominate them, manipulate them, or hitch them to an all-knowing political party. Anarcho-communists do not seek to rear a state structure over these popular revolutionary organs, but on the contrary, to dissolve all the organizational forms developed in the pre-revolutionary period, including their own, into these genuine revolutionary organs. These differences are decisive. Despite their rhetoric and slogans, the Russian Bolsheviks never believed in the Soviets. They regarded them as instruments of the Bolshevik party, an attitude which the French Trotskyists faithfully duplicated in their relations with the Sorbonne Students' Assembly, the French Maoists with the French Labour Unions, and the old left groups with SDS. By 1921, the Soviets were virtually dead, and all decisions were made by the Bolshevik Central Committee and Political Bureau. Not only do anarcho-communists seek to prevent Marxist parties from repeating this, they also wish to prevent their own organization from playing a similar role. 
Accordingly, they try to prevent bureaucracy, hierarchy, and elites from emerging in their midst. No less important, they attempt to remake themselves, to root out from their own personalities those authoritarian traits and elitist propensities that are assimilated in hierarchical society almost from birth. The concern of the anarchist movement with the lifestyle is not merely a preoccupation with its own integrity, but with the integrity of the revolution itself. Footnote 57. In the midst of all the confusing ideological cross-currents of our time, one question must always remain in the foreground. What the hell are we trying to make a revolution for? Are we trying to make a revolution to recreate hierarchy, dangling a shadowy dream of future freedom before the eyes of humanity? Is it to promote further technological advance, to create an even greater abundance of goods than exists today? Is it to get even with the bourgeoisie? Is it to bring PL to power, or the Communist Party, or the Socialist Workers' Party? Is it to emancipate abstractions such as the proletariat, the people, history, society? Or is it finally to dissolve hierarchy, class rule, and coercion, to make it possible for each individual to gain control of his everyday life? Is it to make each moment as marvelous as it could be, and the lifespan of each individual an utterly fulfilling experience? If the true purpose of revolution is to bring the Neanderthal men of PL to power, it is not worth making. We need hardly argue the inane questions of whether individual development can be severed from social and communal development. Obviously the two go together. The basis for a whole human being is a rounded society. The basis for a free human being is a free society. These issues aside, we are still faced with the question that Marx raised in 1850. When will we begin to take our poetry from the future instead of the past? The dead must be permitted to bury the dead. Marxism is dead because it was rooted in an era of material scarcity, limited in its possibilities by material want. The most important social message of Marxism is that freedom has material preconditions. We must survive in order to live. With the development of a technology that could not have been conceived by the wildest science fiction of Marx's day, the possibility of a post-scarcity society now lies before us. All the institutions of propertyed society, class rule, hierarchy, the patriarchal family, bureaucracy, the city, the state, have been exhausted. Today, decentralization is not only desirable as a means of restoring the human scale, it is necessary to recreate a viable ecology, to preserve life on this planet from destructive pollutants and soil erosion, to preserve a breathable atmosphere and the balance of nature. The promotion of spontaneity is necessary if the social revolution is to place each individual in control of his everyday life. The old forms of struggle do not totally disappear with the decomposition of class society, but they are being transcended by the issues of a classless society. There can be no social revolution without winning the workers, hence they must have our active solidarity in every struggle they wage against exploitation. 
we fight against social crimes wherever they appear, and industrial exploitation is a profound social crime. But so are racism, the denial of the right to self-determination, imperialism and poverty profound social crimes. And for that matter, so are pollution, rampant urbanization, the malignant socialization of the young, and sexual repression. As for the problem of winning the working class to the revolution, we must bear in mind that a precondition for the existence of the bourgeoisie is the development of the proletariat. Capitalism as a social system presupposes the existence of both classes and is perpetuated by the development of both classes. We begin to undermine the premises of class rule to the degree that we foster the declassifying of the non-bourgeois classes, at least institutionally, psychologically, and culturally. For the first time in history, the anarchic phase that opened all the great revolutions of the past can be preserved as a permanent condition by the advanced technology of our time. The anarchic institutions of that phase, the assemblies, the factory committees, the action committees, can be stabilized as the elements of a liberated society, as the elements of a new system of self-management. Will we build a movement that can defend them? Can we create an organization of affinity groups that is capable of dissolving into these revolutionary institutions? Or will we build a hierarchical, centralized, bureaucratic party that will try to dominate them, supplant them, and finally destroy them? Listen, Marxist. The organization we try to build is the kind of society our revolution will create. Either we will shed the past, in ourselves, as well as in our groups, or there will simply be no future to win. And that is going to do it for our reading this week. I'm going to try and read ahead a bit in the book to determine what parts are worth still continuing to read on the podcast, because the book has a funny structure, so it's not entirely clear to me what is further reading that makes sense to continue with. So look forward to what comes there, and do not be surprised if there might be a gap week of me having read ahead and then not recorded as I try to catch up on some things. This last section in particular really underscored something that I think has not held up for me in this book in general, but especially the part where it's trying to make the Marxist appeal. I took the title of the book, Post-Scarcity Anarchism, to be about the global level of resources available, the ways in which we have increased efficiency to the point that, balanced out well, people would live in real luxury. A popular myth of how a socialist or communist society would work is that everyone would be scraping by or living in, like, eating gruel every day or having exceedingly dull things and not having any excitement or real enjoyment in their lives. And in pure resource terms, it's not really true. If you actually just leveled everything out across everybody, people would do quite well relative to what they're doing now. People who do worse, broadly speaking, they're doing very well right now. In large part, that's to do with the scale at which stuff is produced at this point. At least in the current moment, 
there's not a huge fear that we would have, say, an actual scarcity of food across the board. There are issues with supply chains, there are issues with particular types of food, there are ecological concerns about our whole way of producing food and various other things related to that. There's a cost of living crisis, but that's to do with the cost of these things. There's not, broadly speaking, a precarity of food at all being supplied to people. Which is what I presumed this book would take as its premise, but reading this last section, the example of the Girondins in France using a 10pm meeting time closure to cut out people who had to labour until 10pm and work late, I don't think Bookchin strictly speaking meant literally nobody today would be bothered by this, but it certainly seems like he's talking to a specific kind of person when he says, well, that's just not something we'd have to worry about today. <laughs> Which is just categorically not true. Lots of people work very late hours. Lots of people have significant material scarcity in their lives. It's a fully invented scarcity because it is capitalist forces using markets to cause people to be in precarious situations so that they will have to work all their lives doing perhaps one or two jobs, or one job with excessive hours, or one job with variable hours. There are lots of ways people are being compelled by a scarcity that is manufactured. This section from Bookchin seems to claim the notion that personal material scarcity basically doesn't exist which is baffling. Now, I didn't live in the time when this was being written, but I don't think that was true then either. And I don't know if this was perhaps an assumption that things would trend in that direction, or if this was just a too narrow view. Again, there's a distinct lack of gender or class or queerness really being discussed in this book. The book refers to freedom being important, and refers to personal freedoms being valuable, it offhandedly refers to people being oppressed for their sexuality, but doesn't go into these as problems, it doesn't try to address them, it doesn't really try to explain why those are different vectors of oppression that are enforced by, but not wholly incumbent on capitalism. If you all change to being in anarchist groups overnight, those vectors of oppression would still be there. You would need to do something about them. They don't disappear immediately. They are exacerbated by the material conditions of the world, but that's not the only way in which they happen. And this book just has no time to talk about that. And frankly, a weird thought I had here is when Bookchin was saying, obviously we're not against organization at all, it, I had the striking thought that Bookchin has not explained a lot about how one would organize a revolution along anarchist principles. Much of the book has been tutting at the Bolsheviks or other communist socialists, at Marx and Engels, a lot of criticism of their thoughts and again, I am lacking an understanding of what a... I continue to lack an actual understanding of what an 
anarchist revolution would look like. Maybe that's by design, because the point is not to tell people how they should revolt, but just from personal experience even, I get the sense that people need a set of instructions. Much like in the last book, I don't think it is inherently manipulation to perhaps be a party that has particular principles and present propaganda that tries to convince people of those principles. Bookshin does this weird bit of doublespeak where he somewhat asserts that that's what the Bolsheviks at large were doing, and then says, of course you do need to convince people of principles, but they should believe them. Which is not to say that there is no way in which you could overstate propaganda and perhaps be pushing them particularly hard, but again, there is no explanation given for what the difference is. There's no insinuation of the way you do it without being too iron-fisted is X or Y. It's just said as if it's an understood problem. And again, all of this feels like it's divorced from real-life conditions. I mean, the obvious thing is he thought there wouldn't be any more economic crises. He thought they were done. But even aside from that, it also feels divorced from the past that he could have seen if he had maybe looked at the past as well as the future and recognized the ways in which the Bolsheviks were dealing with difficult problems. Obviously, there were lots of material scarcity crises that they were dealing with, but I even mean in the sense that a lot of flack is given to the Bolsheviks for wanting to have control over the Soviets. From reading the previous book, it seemed like in some ways the Bolsheviks were retaining control over disparate parts of the Russian Empire because they were trying to balance against parts of the Russian Empire being racist and anti-Semitic. Again, how much do you... Again, if you have principles and ideals and you are trying to apply them, Sometimes that involves trying to say, hey, this person who is going to actively do harm needs to have something done. We need to do something about this vector for harm that will happen unchecked if we just don't do anything. Obviously, that's a much stronger thing than doing propaganda to convince people of the idea of communism being a positive force in their lives but it feels extremely disingenuous to present the idea as if the Bolsheviks were retaining power for power's sake, as opposed to taking it for the material ends they were seeking. And that does feel like the final thought I have about this section where Bookchin's asking, what, what is the point of doing this? Why are you doing your revolution? And it seems like a strange question to ask, because, I mean, look, re again, reading her previous book, the Bolsheviks enacted various improvements in people's lives, even during a time of difficult material conditions. That book talked about how people as a whole weren't massively pleased with the Bolsheviks at multiple points, but ultimately did also say their lives had improved. It had numbers on things that got better. They had been under the heel of an oppressive empire, and one that was somewhat crumbling and struggling to even keep people fed. So, without trying to claim that I understand the Bolshevik party into... 
in depth, it doesn't seem hard to make an argument that they did the revolution to improve people's lives. Whether or not they intended that, it certainly happened somewhat. Where things went from there is obviously a different question. And the ways in which controlling power in a narrow space and centralizing things could have backfired is a different question on top of that, but it seems strange to work backwards to then say, well, they were only really doing it to centralize power, as if Bookchin has any specific insight that we don't about exactly why the Bolsheviks did what they did. But for now, let's close the book on that. We may have a little more from Bookchin. We will see how I feel about the rest of the sections here. But if you have questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions for other books that could be good to check out, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. You can also go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to give them some support and get lots of bonus shows from there. That is all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.